Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 63. This is our lecture on Harry Potter's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, number two, on chapter one. And so on the last episode, we talked a little bit about the cover and what the cover could mean. And so in this episode, we're going to move from the cover to the frontispiece, the second page, the entry, the entrance page. Look at that. Look at the first page to the first chapter, and then we're going to go through the first chapter. And as just a reminder, it is in two days' time on Wednesday that Mr. West Chance, or I suppose in this case, since we're going to Hogwarts, should be Professor West Chance and Professor um, Sarah Miller and myself, Professor Alexander Schmid, we will, like Ron, Hermione, and Harry, I call Hermione, <laughs> be going through this text together and sharing our own experiences with it when we were young and having our own sort of fun summer reading group and discussion because, of course, you recall that so often J.K. Rowling and her publisher would brilliantly uh, release these books, which would often start in the summer and end with summer during the summer when children had time to read and where teachers living, living lives with schedules very similar to children also have time to read. And so the first thing that we notice when we open the American version of this book and look at praise for J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is that beneath that are nine stars. And then when we turn to chapter one, we see uh, as the picture above the boy who lived, nine stars. It looks like eight at first, but you'll notice there's another one above the young Harry's head. And so nine stars is, is, is a significant number as well as starting stars above the sign of a baby. Because, well, in Virgil's Eclogue 4, he talks about the coming of a new age through the figure of a child, which is often considered a prefiguration of the myth or theological notion of Christ, or the historical fact, depending on where you are on that. And so Virgil, writing about 1920 years before the birth of Christ, he dies in 19 BCE, um, is seen as sort of being a prophet by some of that which was to come. And then the greatest poet to have loved Virgil, potentially because there have been many, including Milton, was Dante. And Dante himself goes through not only nine circles of hell, but then nine spheres of heaven, with a tenth sphere being the all-encompassing Imperium. And during his time in those nine spheres, his ideal, Beatrice, is refined more and more as he ga gains more access to the truth or information. As he strives upwards, Dante and his understanding becomes more complete, so does his ideal become more complete by embodying itself more fully in him. And this is emphasized by the fact that eventually Beatrice, who has been leading him all along through desire, uh, disappears and is replaced by a figure of Bernard, Bernard of Clairvaux, who is himself a wise old man who one might imagine would be the ideal of what Dante would hope to be after writing his own epics. And so the figure of nine stars above Harry roots him in the tradition of great literature, suggesting that Harry is himself not just a child, but a child who brings a new idea or way of life. And in fact, how might we emphasize this? Well, even as a child, what does he do? He defeats through the love of his mother, Lord Voldemort, the devil figure, the antagonist to not only him, but to all the wizarding world in which he exists. And so, in his very first moments of life, as a baby, when he is attacked after his true or mortal 
or soon to be called archetypal parents are killed, he brings around a revolution in how all the wizards and muggles uh, in the world will live. The muggles unknowingly, but the wizards knowingly. Essentially, what has happened before Harry was born, which we'll soon learn, is that there was a reign of terror. There was a time of darkness during which Lord Voldemort, in his authoritarian, tyrannical, and evil, malevolent ways, was going about and murdering those who stood against him, who were in hiding. So scared of him were they, like Soviets and Soviet in the Soviet Union, or those during the Great Leap Forward in Mao's China. So scared were they that they ran into hiding. And in fact, we'll learn soon about how it is that they kept hid, hidden through trusting a good friend with their secret, who could only give a, who would enable Voldemort to see them only if they would be betrayed. And so something we know from the get-go is that James and Lily, the parents of Harry, were betrayed. And so... That's something to keep in mind. And so Harry is not just a regular boy. He is the carer of an ideal, a new way of life. And so he is himself from his nascency, a hero, and that which brings about the change or the revolution of the world. And we get all of this just from seeing a few stars above his head. And in fact, we'll end this lecture, this conversation today with a reading of Virgil's fourth Eclogue, and you can see the connections between the young child, the golden age, and the defeating of the snake. And the snake, of course, is a major image in the Harry Potter series, not only through the multiple basilisks, the king snakes, with the power of Medusa to petrify through gaze, but um, also through uh, uh, Voldemort himself, who controls, who's the great antagonist, who controls snakes through his ability to speak in what's called parcel tongue or a snake-like hissing language. And so he speaks the language of evil. And in fact, he leaves his mark on Harry in multiple ways, one of which is that Harry has now a lightning bolt on his head, suggesting that he's something like the son of Zeus, that he's been marked out by evil, that he brings a new thought, a new, um, a new, uh, that he has been thunderstruck in his nascency. And so he brings about the force of lightning with him. Um, so he's like Percy Jackson and the lightning thief, or the same idea there. But also he carries evil with him too, or the potential for evil. And we'll soon see that with the sorting hat, who considers putting him in the Slytherin, or the snake-like house um, that Voldemort had been in. And also he speaks the snake language. And so we see something interesting about the hero and the potential for the future is that it is not just good, but also bad. And so any revolution that brings about something new can be either good or bad, depending on how it is specifically embodied. And so let's meet the parents-to-be or the step-parents, the wards, the guardians of Harry. So after his parents are killed by Voldemort and he somehow vanquishes Voldemort um, through the power of sort of a charm, a love charm that his mother made for him. Um, his mother in some way perhaps representing nature here and the potential for humans to survive the worst, the worst possible malevolence from each other, suggesting that we we shouldn't just give credit to the roaches for nuclear catastrophes and their ability to tra uh, or their ability to survive them, but that we might give ourselves some credit as well. We have been off this planet, for instance. And so the people who are going to raise Harry are more, most normal 
pair of uh, parents. In fact, they're described as exceedingly normal and mundane. And in fact, they, like those uh, who are non-magical in this world, are called muggles rather than wizarding folk. And so the first is Mr. Dursley. I think his name is Fred. I forget exactly what his first name is. And his wife is Petunia Dursley. And he works at a drill factory called Grunnings. And she is a stay-at-home mother. Something interesting is that she is the sister to Lily Potter. Lily was her magical sister, whom she always thought was weird and hated because she had special privileges and seemed to be liked more by the parents, whereas Petunia was ungifted and normal. And Petunia is also known to have a neck that is twice as long as a normal neck, whereas her husband has no neck at all, suggesting that he's even closer to being mundane as he's closer to the ground, <laughs> and that he's rather boring because he drills himself into it. Um, she is known for being a gossip, and so she expresses information, or rather she speaks without sharing information, which is the notion of gossip, where you share your opinions on things, or spread rumors rather than actually sharing truth. Or information being a major ontological difference between those ma manners of conversation the difference between say our conversation that we're having now and someone who simply gives their slant on something and so mr dursley and mrs petunia are very much afraid of the fact that people will someday find out that they are associated with the potters who are magical folk and so what do they represent well they like the empire and star wars represent the forces of order and tradition and the magical folk represent those who are creative and have the power of imagination. In fact, magical folk are known to wear funny hats. They have robes of many colors, vermilion, crimson, green. In fact, we'll see soon Dumbledore has a purple uh, royal um, wizarding cloak, whereas McGonagall, Professor McGonagall, who will be in the form of a tabby cat at first and is the teacher or professor of transfiguration, will wear green. Um, and so the wizarding folk are the strange folks with the new ideas, the novel ideas, who are willing to fly around on flights of fancy and pursue that which is anomalous. And so you might consider the wizarding folk and the muggle folk as the yin and the yang of the world in which Harry Potter exists, the forces of tradition and order as it once was, and uh, the forces that bring about all that which, all that which is new in the world. And of course, also, the Dursleys have their young child, whose name is Dudley, very similar to Pugsley from the Adams family, self-satisfied, fat, um, pig-like, bully-esque, covetous, tantrum-throwing, given everything. And so he is sort of the opposite, the Cain-like opposite to Abel, the opposite, the hostile brother to the good brother, the um, the uh, potentially the Remus to the Romulus or the Romulus to the Remus, depending on how you read that that uh, story. He is the child who is spoiled by being given everything except for the opportunity to become his own person because he has been completely catered to by his mother and father. And so he doesn't learn emotional self-control. He doesn't learn um, culinary self-control control and so he becomes very large he doesn't learn social self-control and so he never makes friends with his soon to be very powerful cousin or uh raised his brother and so even though he's given everything and we'll see this very much so in the second 
chapter with the snake in the vanishing glass, he, uh, he amounts to nothing because of it. And Harry, who we'll soon see, is given nothing, not even, not even a picture on the wall by his step-parents. Well, he will come to be, well, essentially an epic hero that will uh, exist within his world and likely our own world for quite some bit of time. And so the fact that Harry is going to be dropped in on this family as like a new idea or a new way of being being dropped in on a very tr on a tradition or a set of order so of course in this case the the order will attempt to repress the new information and suppress it but of course Harry will bloom into who he is supposed to be and the way of things will change and that will start largely in chapter 3 and so as the story progresses, we hear of strange things happening. In fact, it's Uncle Vernon, and that's how I recall. His name is Vernon Dudley. And notice also that the names of the two sisters, uh, Petunia, who is Vernon's wife, and her now dead sister, Lily, they both have flowers as their names. And something interesting about Lily is that the Lily is the flower of Florence. And Florence, of course, from the Italian word fiori, which means um, flower itself, um, they were represented by a lily, or in French, a fleur de lis, which is called the flower of light. And it's called the flower of light not only because lilies are often white, but also because lilies are a funereal flower. You give lilies um, to those who are dead. You take them to funerals. And so it is rather apropos, since we will never see Lily alive, we will see her specter a couple times throughout the tech, throughout the series, not this particular text. We will see an image of her in the mirror of Erised, which is desire backwards, um, indicating that simply looking at what you desire will never get you there um, because of its inverse nature. It's like focusing on your goal without moving towards it. Um, and so she, it's very much appropriate that Lily's name is Lily because a lily marks out a funeral. And the first thing we ever learn about her is that she's dead, which is sad. And so Vernon is going on his usual day, and he can't help but notice that there are odd things happening. There are people in oddly shaped and looking cloaks outside hugging each other. There are owls swooping about, often which he misses. And so something special has happened. And so we come back to Privet Drive. Four Privet Drive. And there we see a cat who's been there all day sitting about. And all of a sudden, one by one, 12 lights go off by a silver, by the use of a man, an old man with half moon spectacles and a purple cloak. Um, he also has a silver, um, it looks like lighter is how it's described, cigarette lighter, but it's a putter outer. And we'll, we'll later see it renamed by J.K. Rowling, I believe in the third text, where it will be called a deluminator. And so we have this figure who was not there and is there, who can turn the lights out and will later turn the lights on. And he turns out 12 lights, like the 12 hours of the day or the 12 months. And so we have a figure of the old wise man here who is often a figure of God. And he's meeting the theriomorphic, that means the animal form of another professor, a female named Professor Minerva McGonagall. Minerva, of course, being the name for the Roman goddess of war and wisdom based on the Greek goddess Athena, who was also a goddess of war strategy and wisdom. And if you think about it, of course, 
uh, war strategy is necessary before wisdom in the way that we think of it. If one considers wisdom, the learning one takes from scrolls or books, because of course you must have a society stable enough to develop a written language and then to keep a tradition through writing. Um, and so that's always very interesting to teach my students when I teach them through the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid. And so we have a conversation between this sort of God the Father, old wise man, Albus Dumbledore, and Minerva McGonagall. And something interesting is that Albus's name, and J.K. Rowling was known to have studied a little bit of the classics, and that will come through here. Albus means white, Dumbledore in Latin. Dumbledore comes from Old English and means... It means bumblebee, and something interesting thus is that he's like a white bumblebee. And well, what do we know about bumblebees? They have stripes. And what would the stripe color on white be? It would obviously be black. And so he embodies both white and black, both good and evil, and is thus a perfect figure of the divine. And so who does he speak to? Well, just as we see in the Old Testament Proverbs, wisdom claiming that it was along the, the top, the midst of the... It existed alongside the spirit of the divine when it, when the spirit of the divine had not yet formed um, the world and still existed hovering above the abyss, as it were, or chaos. And so here in the darkness, before the light is put on and before, or the twelve lights are placed back on, and before Harry is given to the world, as it were, we see a conversation between Minerva, whose name means wisdom or is synonymous with wisdom, and with Albus Dumbledore, who is a figure of the divine. And what is it they talk about? Well, the future of this boy, the future of the age. And well, it turns out that Albus is going to give this boy, sort of like God the Father in Milton's Paradise Lost, giving the son, though the son there chose, um, to go down to the world and die. Well, he's giving Harry not to the wizarding world immediately, but first to the muggle world. Harry, who would be a hero to all wizards for having withstood Voldemort, the ultimate devil figure, and would be raised in sort of a spoiled Dudley-like fawning way. Well, instead, he has to watch another boy be raised sort of like a hero and himself be an outcast, exile, or lowly orphan. And as I mentioned earlier, Orphans are often how heroes start, whether they be Oliver Twist or Heracles without his true father. It, this is a point that the Jungians often make, too, because a hero has not only one set of parents, his earthly parents, but also his celestial parents or his archetypal parents who want him to be a hero. And that will be just as true of Harry, who has, of course, his step-parents, but also his archetypal parents who were his true parents, who he never was raised by because, unfortunately, they were killed by Voldemort. And so Minerva McGonagall is first taken, she's taken aback by the fact that Harry is going to be raised by these prudish muggles. And in fact, she cries for James and Lily, having been their professor herself and having had some love for them. And this is always an interesting moment because McGonagall, as a figure of wisdom, will be painted as sort of coldly rational at times throughout the text. But she shows a heart of gold uh, several times, uh, not, in, uh, not the least of which times being when she fights for Hogwarts in book seven. And so she, she likes Sherlock Holmes, who showed his own great heart when once he thought one of his machinations got Watson killed and said he would never forgive himself. So does McGonagall care for those around her, suggesting that wisdom knows empathy 
as well, an important thing to keep in mind for young intellectuals. And so while they are talking, Hagrid comes, and Hagrid is a half-giant. He's said to be something like two times taller than a normal human, so something like 10 to 12 feet, and I believe five times wider. So he's 10 times bigger than a normal human. And so we get that image of 10 again. We've seen nine, now we see 10. Harry will remain for 10 years with his parents. And um, Hagrid is 10 times larger than a normal human. In fact, just some other number number imagery. Uh, Vernon Dudley, Mr. Dudley, works on the ninth floor of uh, Grunnings, of his office building. Um, And I believe there might even be another 10, but I'll have to check my notes again at some point. Again, there's just always so, there's so much water in the ocean that my hands can't hope to scoop it all up. And so Hagrid arrives on a motorcycle that he says that he's received from Sirius Black. Something interesting about that is that we will learn later in the third book that Sirius Black has been accused of the murder of the parents of Harry, James and Lily, and he had been James's best friend, and it said that he was the one that kept the secret of their location from Voldemort, and so he's seen as a black betrayer. And how Hagrid came to have the bike of Sirius, I believe, must be because Sirius has been taken to Azkaban after the death, the deaths of Lily and James, because he was the obvious one to be accused and therefore is no longer in need of the bike. And Azkaban is the wizarding prison that is um, guarded by supposedly no humans, but just these terrible python-like creatures, uh, not in visage, but in their consuming nature called Dementors. And Dementors eat all your good thoughts. So all you can know is depression and sorrow while you exist in Azkaban. And well, if it turns out that Sirius Black is not the man who, who betrayed James and Lily, then the amount of time he must spend in Azkaban would would be very much unjustly given to him. And so Hagrid, this half-giant man, who's sort of awkward and good with animals and apparently also good with machinery, though not particularly good with magic, and we'll soon learn that he's actually expressly forbidden from magic because he was expelled um, from Hogwarts, and we'll learn about that in the second book. Well, he's sort of like a Hephaestian figure. And so we have this sort of Zeus or God, Dumbledore-like figure with wisdom. And then we have this sort of lumbering, awkward, very similar to Hephaestus in that Hephaestus is not only good with making, with forging new creations, but also is himself awkward and is laughed at by the gods in Book 1 of the Iliad for for his limp, which he acquired either either he was born with it and was born deformed, or he acquired it by being thrown from Olympus by Zeus. Very sad. And um, so Hephaestus is himself in exile, and we'll soon learn that Hagrid was himself exiled, but brought back into the fold by Dumbledore, because, well, what, what exiled Hagrid may have been just as unjust and unfair um, as what gets Sirius Black thrown into prison. Apparently, um, injustice exists in all worlds. And so what does Hagrid bring down from the sky in this, this chimerical fashion with this flying motorcycle? Not a broom, not a normal motorcycle. Well, he brings Harry. And so Harry stands 
with these triune figures or sits or sleeps in the swaddling clothes and is brought to Privet Drive where he will remain and be raised. And so Harry, like the birth of a new age, will remain latent, which comes from the same word as Latin, both words meaning hidden. And so he will remain hidden, unremarkable, within <laughs> within a, a, a cupboard underneath the stairs, like a monster, and perhaps to some extent he is a monster, um, until his 11th birthday when he will be summoned to Hogwarts and to his destiny, finally. And so, as a conclusion, I'll read to you very shortly the fourth eclogue written by Virgil. And perhaps you can make some connections between its message and the message of Harry Potter. Because so long as history and time continues to roll, new ages will continue to come about to replace old ones. And so, Muses of Sicily, sing we a somewhat ampler strain. Not all men's delight is in coppices and lowly tamarisks. If we sing of the woods, let them be woods worthy of a consul. Now is the... Is come the last age of the Cumaean prophecy. The great cycle of periods is born anew. Now returns the maid, returns the reign of Saturn. Now from high heaven a new generation comes down like Harry on the motorcycle. And of course the maid being McGonagall and Saturn being, uh, being uh, Dumbledore. Yet do thou at that boy's birth in whom the iron race shall begin to cease and the golden to rise over all the world holy lucina goddess of light like luke's lucis be gracious now thine own apollo reigns and in thy consulate in thine opolio shall this glorious age enter and the great months begin their march under thy rule what traces of our guilt yet remain vanishing shall free earth forever from alarm he shall grow in the life of the gods, and shall see gods and heroes mingled, and himself be seen by them, and shall rule the world that is his father's virtues have set at peace. But on thee, O oh boy, Harry, <laughs> until shall earth first pour childish gifts, wandering ivy, tendrils, and foxglove, and colocasia mingled with the laughing acanthus, untended shall the she-goats bring home their milk-swollen udders, nor shall huge lions alarm the herds. And so something interesting about Harry is that he too will be untended at first, his magical gifts un uncared for, but his hair. And something interesting about his head is that his hair is known to be very, very wild, and we'll talk about that more in the lecture to come. But untended at first requires a cultivator to come. And so, unbidden thy cradle shall break, into wooing blossom the snake too shall die keep in mind basilisks and voldemort here and die the treacherous poison plant a syrian spice shall grow all up and down but when once thou shalt be able now to read the glories of heroes and thy father's deeds and to know virtue as she is slowly the plain shall grow golden with the soft corn spike and the reddening grape Trail from the wild briar and the hard oaks shall drip dew of honey. Nevertheless, there shall linger some few traces of ancient 
wrong. Voldemort never can be destroyed. Evil or malevolence or, or that which is Luciferian, insofar as their conscious beings, are never fully gone. To bid, because that's the basis of free choice, choosing between good and evil, to bid ships tempt the sea, and towns be girt with walls, and the earth cloven in furrows. Then shall a second Tiphys be, and a second Argo to sail with chosen heroes. The Argo was, of course, the first ship, uh, inspired by Athena, of course. New wars, too, shall arise, and again a mighty Achilles be sent to Troy thereafter. When now strengthening age hath wrought thee into man, the very, the very voyager shall cease out of the sea, nor the sailing pine exchange her merchandise. All lands shall bear all things. The ground shall not suffer the mattock, not the vine the pruning hook. Now likewise the strong plowman shall loose his bulls from the yoke. Neither shall wool learn to counterfeit, changing hues, but the ram in the meadow himself shall dye his fleece now with soft glowing sea purple, now with yellow saffron. Native scarlet shall clothe the lambs as their pasturage. Run even thus, O ages, said the harmonious fates of their spindles. By the steadfast ordinance of doom, draw nigh to thy high honors. Even now will the time become, O dear offspring of gods, mighty germ of Jove. And here's the conclusion. Behold the world swaying her orbid mass, lands and spaces of sea and depth of sky. Behold how all things rejoice in the age to come. Recall the, the, the uh, magical folk out amongst the muggles dancing on the streets after Voldemort's death, or he who must not be named, but will be heroic here, and we'll say his name. Ah, may the latter end of a long life then yet be mine, and such breath as shall suffice to tell thy deeds, nor... Not Orpheus of Thrace, nor Linus shall surpass me in song, though he have his mother and his father to his aid. Orpheus, Calliope, Linus, beautiful Apollo, if even Ban Pan before his Arcady, Arcadia, contend with me, even Pan before his Arcady shall declare himself conquered. Ah, quite the, quite the hubris there for our, our young epic poet. Uh, then a pastoral poet named Virgil. Begin. And this is where we will end today, in the beginning. Begin, O little boy, to know and smile upon thy mother, thy mother on whom ten months, and there's our third ten of the day, ten months have brought weary longings. Begin, O little boy, of them who have not smiled on a parent, never was one honored at a god's board or on a goddess's couch. And so this has been our second lecture on Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. This is on book one, or excuse me, chapter one. I'm so used to teaching epics, which have books or cantos um, that that uh, constrain or organize their verses. And in two days' time on Wednesday, we'll have our first conversation with our other two trepid adventurers, Professor Wesley Shantz and Professor Sarah Miller, two other fellow teachers, I call them professor, out of professional courtesy, but also because of the, um, the secondary school um, habit of those within Hogwarts, within this magical world of the Harry Potter series. And so, we are teachers, but we will pre be professors here, unless we decide that we're just so similar to Harry and Ron and uh, Hermione that we couldn't possibly be professors. But that's neither here 
nor there. Thank you again for listening. I hope you feel a little more enlightened and connected to the magical worlds which exist within our own and which take their source from the one in which we live. Thank you.